Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Sweden and Finland are both historically neutral countries. Though both are members of the European Union, they are decidedly not members of NATO. But that may soon change. In the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, these two Scandinavian countries, Finland of which shares a long border with Russia, have signaled a desire to join the U.S.-led Western military alliance. Appearing side-by-side in Stockholm in mid-April, the prime ministers of both countries eschewed their tradition of military non-alliance in favor of joining NATO. Quote, there is a before and after February 24th, said the prime minister of Sweden. On the line with me to explain the significance of Sweden and Finland joining NATO is Ivo Dalder. He is the president of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs and former U.S. ambassador to NATO. We kick off discussing Sweden and Finland's historic neutrality before having a longer conversation about the process of NATO membership and what impact adding these two countries to the alliance may have, both militarily and diplomatically. It was great having Ivo Dalder back on the podcast, and as he explains, this process of admitting Sweden and Finland to NATO probably will happen pretty quickly as far as these things go, and this conversation, I think, will give you the context you need to understand this process as it unfolds. And as always, feel free to reach out to me using the contact button on globaldispatches.org if you have anything on your mind. I always love hearing from you. I particularly look forward to suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover. Thanks. All right. Now, here is my conversation with Ivo Dalder, former U.S. ambassador to NATO during the Obama administration and the president of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, they both, for historical reasons, uh, decided that their security and their independence was better preserved not being part of an alliance and being part of an alliance. In the case of Sweden, that's this been uh, more than two centuries, in 1814 uh, onwards, Sweden has had a formal policy of neutrality. And that policy persisted until the end of the Cold War. It was only after the Cold War that the question was raised whether uh, Sweden ought to join any uh, Western uh, Western bloc. And it did, uh, together with Finland, in 1995 when it joined the EU. And of course, the EU also has a mutual defense uh, obligation. So that's changed the the question of neutrality. Um, 
But in 1995, uh, the idea that uh, there was a threat coming uh, that required countries to join NATO just wasn't part of the debate. And the longstanding political sense, uh, in, indeed, in both countries was that being members of the European Union, it was good from a political and economic perspective, but security uh, challenges weren't such that uh, they felt it necessary to be part of NATO. Uh, what they did do, and this is true for both of them, uh, they became very strong partners uh, of NATO. They they joined the Partnership for Peace, which was a new arrangement and uh, uh, put forward by uh, the, first the United States, but then by NATO uh, in the uh, early to mid-1990s uh, as a way to uh, engage uh, countries that hadn't been part of, uh, of NATO, both countries that were had been neutral during the Cold War, like Finland and Sweden and others, um, but also the, car, uh, the countries of the, uh, the former uh, Warsaw Pact and the former Soviet Union. Indeed, Russia was a member of uh, the Partnership for Peace. And this was an arrangement in which countries could decide for themselves the degree to which they would cooperate uh, with NATO. In the case, again, of Finland and Sweden, that cooperation was deep. Uh, uh, both countries participated in the Afghanistan uh, operation. Both countries participated in the Kosovo operation that came after the, the Kosovo war. Uh, and uh, Sweden participated in the operation against Libya uh, by flying their aircraft uh, and providing intelligence and surveillance and reconnaissance uh, to NATO forces. So there's been a very close partnership, uh, but no need to seek a formal defense guarantee all of that changed on February 24th. To your knowledge, or, or is it your assessment that this change stems from popular pressure in both Sweden and Finland to join NATO? This is not sort of you know foreign policy elites in the country saying now is a good time to, to do this. Rather, uh, that the people of Sweden and the people of Finland are signaling this strong desire to you know avoid the fate of, of what happened in Ukraine. I mean, clearly, public opinion has shifted very rapidly uh, in, in both countries. Uh, in, in Sweden, uh, over 50% of uh, the Swedish population now supports uh, NATO membership, and that rises to uh, the mid-60s if, uh, uh, if Finland uh, joins at the same time. Yeah, in I Finland, saw those same polls. That, that's wild. Yeah. That's I mean, in Finland, it's wild. Right, right. It's now seventy-seven percent of the population that wants to join NATO. Oh, I saw sixty-seven um, the last one, but that was probably a couple of days old. Wow. Yeah, it's been it's 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 going seventy-seven percent, and and people think that that's probably more or less that reflects you know three, three and four, uh, four and five uh, uh, people in, in in Finland. So there is very strong support. Uh, it isn't you know it's always difficult to see what is driving. Is it a lead or public opinion? Clearly, they're moving in the same direction. In the case of Finland, uh, you've got to go back to the New Year's speech that the Finnish prime minister, uh, sorry, the president, the Finnish president gave a New Year's speech in which warning about the buildup of Russian forces uh, suggested that Finland uh, had to possibly rethink its posture. Uh, I don't remember the exact words, but I remember the speech being uh, seen as as already representing a pretty big break from how Finland usually talked about these issues. But the reality was when when it was clear that there were 175,000 Russian troops arrayed along the border of Ukraine, uh, that if you have a border with Russia 
uh, as Finland has of over 800 miles, you start to worry and you start to think if they can do that to Ukraine, can they do that to us? Uh, and how do we best protect ourselves? And it's in that context that the issue of NATO membership and particularly, you know, let's be clear, the security guarantee from the United States that being a member, member of NATO uh, entails uh, became an issue that all of a sudden uh, was spoken of publicly. The governments in both, both countries uh, engaged in a study. The finished study is done. It shows that NATO membership uh, is something that, uh, that really could uh, approve, improve security uh, for Finland. The study in Sweden is still ongoing, but it's supposed to be done in the, uh, in the not too distant future. Um, it's an old party uh, conversation. Of course, the leading party in, Switzerland, in, in Sweden right now, the Social Democrats, have long been opposed uh, to NATO membership and they'd have to change their minds. And in that sense, I think in some ways, Publix is leading that party uh, and to some extent that government as well. Uh, so could you walk me through the process by which Sweden and Finland might become members of NATO? So Article 10 of the NATO Treaty, uh, which was signed in 1949, uh, has, uh, it provides for the possibility of other European states uh, to be invited to join NATO if doing so would improve the security of the North Atlantic area. So uh, NATO's dual, NATO has a provision for allowing European states, and it's important, there's a geographic limit, uh, to who can be invited uh, into NATO. And this provision has been used many times before, including during the Cold War in 1952. So three years after the treaty uh, was uh, was signed, uh, the then 12 members invited uh, Greece and Turkey to join. In 1955, uh, uh, West Germany, which had become an independent country, uh, uh, in, in 1949 was invited to join. In 1982, Spain, which had thrown off the, the, the yoke of, uh, of fascism uh, with the departure of, uh, of uh, Generalissimo Franco, uh, applied, uh, wanted to become a member of NATO and was invited to join. And then, of course, after the Cold War, we've had a series of uh, enlargement decisions uh, that ultimately brought another 14 members to NATO. So you now have 30 members compared to the 12 members that were originally. So how so how does it work? You need an invitation. Uh, you can apply. You can say, I would like an invitation, but you need an invitation. And anything that in NATO, uh, including whether or not to issue an invitation to a country, uh, is done by consensus. Consensus means that no one objects necessarily mean that everybody agrees, but that no one objects. So uh, a, a first step is uh, a, a invitation being issued by NATO, which at this point requires 30, uh, uh, 30 countries to agree uh, or not to oppose uh, an invitation. I think that's likely uh, 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 to happen. And I think we may see actually such an invitation being sent uh, at the NATO summit, which is uh, scheduled for Madrid uh, in late June of this year. Uh, provided, so you expect that, that sort of key first step, the invitation by consensus of the 30 member states be conveyed at, at or by the Madrid at the NATO. summit? Yeah, I think okay. so. I mean, there's one, of course, both Finland and Sweden need to indicate that they would welcome such an invitation. Mm -hmm. So that's the first step. 
uh, and Finland is getting pretty close. Uh, it, it looks like just the timetable, um, complicated internal politics and everything else is happening in Sweden, but the timetable for the Swedes is sometime in late May, early June. So by late May, early June, uh, the political consensus within these two countries will indicate that they would uh, welcome an invitation. And then an invitation is forthcoming. And I think that's going to happen no later than the NATO summit. Uh, uh, and that's 30 countries. Assuming the invitation is issued, the countries that are being invited would then accept it. And, uh, and having so accepted, you would then have to amend the treaty, the 1949 treaty, because the treaty lists the members. And if you have two new members, it needs to be listed then. And this presumably is the hard part, the ratification process. So, so there is a rat. Therefore, you need ratification, and all thirty countries uh, need to ratify. And whatever constitutional procedures depends on the Swedes have would have to be agreed as well. Uh, in you know the EU, where there's been a, a lot of treaty and ratifications, uh, uh, some countries require um, referenda. Um, uh, in the case of NATO, uh, I don't think that a single country requires a referendum to, uh, to amend an existing treaty. Uh, but you still need, you need ratification in the United States. You need 67% of votes, uh, in the Senate. Just surveying U.S. politics, I mean, to me, it seems that there is that requisite two-thirds majority there in the Senate. You'll probably have a couple of holdouts like Rand Paul and maybe a couple of others. But looking at the U.S. Senate right now, it seems likely if come put yep, to a vote, Sweden and Finland would, would be ratified as members of NATO in the U.S. Senate. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's likely. I think the real question is getting time on the Senate calendar. You know, if you need to present with the treaty, you'll need hearings in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and a report and all that sort of stuff, the parliamentary procedures. Uh, and the question is, how quickly can you do that? Um, uh, you know, in theory, can be done quickly. In practice, it's we know that the U.S. Senate doesn't work quickly enough. But I don't see a problem uh, in the U.S., uh, nor do I see a problem, frankly, uh, in any other country. I just don't see uh, this issue being problematical, in part because having uh, Finland and Sweden as part of NATO is a net gain for the alliance. In fact, that's you know one of the reasons they will be invited. Well, to what extent during that time period, you know, after the invitation has been issued, but before all 30 countries have have ratified, do you suspect that Russia might do what it can to upend ratification processes in other countries or otherwise use its influence to impede that process. I mean, there are some countries like Viktor Orban's Hungary, a member of NATO, and perhaps one vulnerable weak point in the NATO's unity in deciding whether or not to to accept Sweden and Finland. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I'm sure that Russia will try. Uh, I think its credibility in in Europe is uh, it's been slightly damaged uh, in recent months, uh, given the behavior it has engaged in, and therefore. It is uh, uh, difficult, uh, in if not impossible, uh, for any uh, country really to uh, to point to Russia's displeasure uh, as a mean as a as a reasonable argument for not proceeding, which clearly was the case beforehand. And uh, one of the reasons Ukraine is not a member of NATO is because some countries in NATO were worried about what it, what it, uh, how the Russians would react. I think there's less concern about the Russian reaction because 
Uh, I think there's an understanding that Russia won't like it, um, but there's also less concern that we should care about what mm-hmm. Russia thinks. So I think that's that's one part of why I don't think it, it is going to be a particularly problematical uh, issue. It certainly hasn't dissuaded the Finns and the Swedes so far from seeking uh, the, a road to NATO membership. And no matter what the kind of threats that have come out from Russia, they just don't seem to work anymore, uh, in part because Russia's military capacity uh, doesn't uh, appear to be as threatening as it appeared prior to the war, given it's, uh, how, how badly it has fared against the Ukrainians. And in part because most of the military capability Russians have right now is is locked down in Ukraine. So it becomes a little less likely that it will be used uh, uh, anywhere else. And for the same reason, countries like even those more sympathetic in the past to Russia uh, are unlikely to um, uh, to stand in the way of Finland and Sweden joining. And just as they didn't stand in the way of North Macedonia, uh, joining a few uh, a few years ago, uh, or Montenegro back in uh, at the beginning of the Trump administration. I just don't see it. Can I ask you about the perhaps unique role of Turkey, which has you know seen itself something as like a mediator, uh, if haltingly, between Ukraine and Russia? You don't see Turkey putting up, up any sort of objection, considering it's somewhat of a mediator role that it's playing right now. No, I don't. I think the Turks are going to be understand the value of, of having these two countries as part of NATO. Uh, they have played a mediating role on the one hand. On the other hand, they've been very significantly supported the Ukrainians uh, in uh, the kind of capabilities that they have been providing them. Um, and, and so I, I think they want to keep their door open to Russia. Uh, certainly Erdogan wants it. Uh, I think that's true, for frankly, for other countries, too. Remember, Macron has been... Uh, on the phone to to Putin uh, quite a bit, or a little less in recent weeks because of the campaign. Um, uh, so I, the fact that the, the Turks want a mediating role doesn't mean they're going to do Russia's bidding, and they haven't done Russia's bidding uh, on this issue. So again, I don't see them as a as a main obstacle. And lastly, on this question of like European political and diplomatic dynamics, I mean, we're speaking four days ahead of the second and final round of the French election. I mean, polls right now have Macron up he- ahead, uh, but you know, Le Pen, his his challenger, is sort of avowedly not pro NATO, if not stridently anti NATO. Would a Le Pen victory upend Sweden and Finland's plans for joining NATO potentially? I think a Le Pen victory um, uh, will upend a lot of things. All right. Um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, uh, including including that that particular issue. So, I, I basically have decided I will comment on what happens with Le Pen if it happens, and if it doesn't happen, I don't have to talk about it. Fair enough. <laughs> as good as answer as I could have <laughs> expected. Assuming that Finland and Sweden do become members of NATO, what sort of military? capacity uh, do these countries bring to the alliance it is it like meaningful in any way yeah it's, it's very meaningful it's meaningful geographically so you you basically uh, have the entor- entire uh, nordic part of europe uh, uh, as part of nato with the sole exception of ireland that's how far south you need to go uh, or Switzerland and Austria, um, but you you uh, sort of a big gap in in the NATO map. If you look at the NATO map, uh, was the absence of Sweden and Finland uh, from an alliance that did have Iceland, Norway, and uh, uh, and Denmark as in fact originally founding members. 
uh, of the alliance. So uh, it closes that geographic gap, and the geographic gaps are important for airspace, land space, and, and sea uh, sea uh, uh, areas uh, for for common defense. It just makes it easier. Um, uh, secondly, these are countries that have real military capabilities. They may have been neutral, but they were armed. Uh, they have a very significant military. That's particularly true for the Finns, uh, whose air force is uh, as good as, as any. Uh, they fly the most advanced F-18 aircraft and have already ordered F-35s, uh, which are the most advanced fighter aircraft uh, uh, in the world. Um, they had a large ground army, uh, 250,000. Uh, they still have conscription. Uh, in in Finland, and the, the army of two hundred fifty thousand that can very rapidly be uh, mobilized to about nine hundred thousand troops. That's significant for it. That's like uh, a quarter of the population, country. isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is just a remarkable number that they can put to uh, to, to together, um, because that's they you know they 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 know of which uh, uh, of which they speak when it comes to their neighbor. They fought uh, two wars in thirty nine successfully and forty four less successfully. Uh, but with tremendous costs on the part of the uh, the Soviet Union um, uh, at the time. So they maintained that capability. And that capability now becomes available uh, to NATO uh, in, in, in case of need. The Swedes similarly have uh, a domestic-grown uh, air force that is quite significant and a very good Navy, uh, including submarines. Uh, and a variety of other uh, other really significant uh, military capabilities. So they are coming in to the alliance uh, with real capabilities that has long been been uh, compatible with the uh, assets that NATO countries have because they have worked in NATO operations. They know the communications capabilities. It is about as seamless an integration as we're going to see as anything. And then finally, and and really critically. Um, they are both Baltic uh, Sea uh, uh, nations and uh, very close to the Baltic countries, three small uh, former Soviet uh, countries that were part of the Soviet Union, although we never recognized it, uh, that have long felt very insecure uh, being neighbors of Russia. Uh, and now Finland uh, and uh, Sweden are going to be uh, part of the capacity of defending those countries. Uh, which clearly sends a message to Russia um, that NATO is even more serious about uh, defending these countries than they were before. So, you know, NATO is obviously a military alliance. It's governed by a political body, the North Atlantic Council. How would admitting Finland and Sweden change the diplomatic dynamics of the, the North Atlantic Council? It would have no impact whatsoever. Um, in the sense that, I mean, there, there's been long a complaint that the enlargement has made the decision-making more difficult at, at, within the North Atlantic Council. That just isn't the case. Um, certainly wasn't the case when I was there, and I haven't seen it since. Just because you have more people doesn't mean you necessarily have more disagreement. Uh, many of the allies that have, uh, the countries that have joined NATO since the Cold War did so because they believed in, in, in the need to uh, enjoy the security of NATO, uh, enjoy the security of the United States, and which meant that it, making sure that you went along, even when the issue wasn't necessarily high on your agenda, was important because you wanted to be sure that if you needed NATO, uh, NATO would be there for you. 
And my classic example is that is that the Baltic states and Estonia in particular, uh, but all three Baltic states uh, made significant contributions to the NATO operation in Afghanistan. Uh, Estonia uh, at, at one point uh, had more casualties per capita than any other country, including the United States, uh, uh, suffered in Afghanistan. Not because they were in Afghanistan, because they saw a threat from Afghanistan to Estonia, but they wanted to be good NATO members, good NATO allies, because if, God forbid, anything happened to their security, they wanted to be able to say, hey, we were there for you. It's time for you to be there for us. So that's that's how the dynamic works in in, in particular in, in NATO. In terms of Sweden and Finland, it's also important to point out, they've been at the table not only for a long time when it came to operations that they were involved in, they've been at the table since the, the, the war. Uh, they've been part of the foreign ministers meeting, they've been part of the defense ministers meetings. They've been part of the two summits, one virtual, one in person, uh, that has uh, taken place uh, and have had a, a non-voting seat there. So they know how this place operates mm-hmm. and uh, they, they will um, no doubt uh, want to join consensus uh, if, if that's what... Uh, uh, what is necessary to move things forward. So so I'm glad you brought up Afghanistan. You know, as long as I've been sort of like aware of foreign policy issues, whether it's Kosovo when I was in high school or Afghanistan in 2001 when I was in college or Libya when I was like a full-time you know, foreign policy reporter, like the core of what NATO did, uh, at least for me on the outside, was not sort of deterring Russian aggression in Europe, but it was sort of expeditionary. It was, it was far from that core mission. Um, do the admission of these two members and current dynamics in the world today suggest to you that for the foreseeable future, at least, NATO will return to that core mission and forego um, you know, adventurism abroad? Yeah, I don't know if I wanted to call it adventurism abroad, but um, uh, clearly the focus for the immediate future, uh, and, and I don't know how long that is, but quite a while. Uh, will be on uh, returning to collective defense uh, as sort of the fundamental core mission of NATO. In 2010, when I was there as the ambassador, we adopted a new strategic concept, uh, which sort of the, the, the big political military document that sort of frames what NATO's purpose is. And we identified f- three core tasks, collective defense, um, crisis management, and cooperative security. Uh, we uh, NATO is about to adopt a new strategic posture uh, concept long in the works uh, at the Madrid summit in June. And I would be surprised if uh, if NATO were to give equal weight to all three of those pillars and uh, rather than uh, overwhelming weight to collective defense uh, as the primary mission uh, for NATO going going forward. Uh, and so, yes, I do think there is going to be a concentration on protecting NATO territory from the armed, armed attack by, uh, uh, by, by Russia, whether Russia gets uh, identified specifically or not, uh, and less attention than probably one would have thought a year ago to issues like NATO's role vis-a-vis China or NATO's role vis-a-vis climate change uh, or um, uh, cyber in a general way. Yes, cyber vis-a-vis Russia and China perhaps, but not uh, in a general way. So I think you're going to see a concentration of, of focused effort on uh, collective defense. Uh, so lastly, I kind of want to run an argument 
by you that I could foresee being aired in certain foreign policy circles, which is that admitting Finland and Sweden to NATO today is needlessly provocative uh, when you're seeking to find off-ramps uh, and ways to engage Vladimir Putin's Russia out of, of this war in Ukraine. There are certain you know, foreign policy critiques suggesting that Russia invaded Ukraine because of Ukraine's insistence on being a NATO member sometime in the future. That was, again, needlessly provocative from Russia's perspective. Like, How do you respond to that kind of line of criticism? I find it harder and harder to respond to it because it becomes less and less serious uh, as, a, as a line of argument. Russia invaded Ukraine because it was not a member of NATO. In fact, the, uh, the U.S. and NATO explicitly said that they would not come to the defense of Ukraine, which is an explicitly said that because they were not a member of NATO, NATO, there was no Article 5 guarantee. And that therefore the idea that NATO is what provoked Russia uh, uh, rather than the absence of NATO uh, provoking Russia is, um, is the problem. And Finland and Sweden have now got that. They have decided uh, that their security now depends on them being members of NATO. Uh, because the record shows that when you are a neighbor of Russia and you're not a member of NATO, they're going to, they uh, may well intervene uh, militarily against you. And so security now rests with being part of NATO rather than the other way around. What provokes uh, and what has provoked Putin is not strength, but weakness. He did what he did because he thought he could get away with it. He thought the Ukrainians were weak. He thought that the West was divided and weak and would not respond. Uh, and he thought that uh, by doing so, he could force NATO to do what the critics of NATO would argue to do, which is to move further away from Russian territory. And instead, what he got was a war he didn't expect with losses he never had contemplated. And the possibility that he may actually lose this war in Ukraine and come out worse than he was on the on February 24th, a major, major increase of NATO forces uh, uh, on its borders in uh, in, in uh, other in the east, forces that were not there prior to the 24th of, of February that are there now and are likely to be larger. They he will also have gotten NATO and. Uh, expanded to its border with Finland and Sweden. And by the way, he's probably going to find that in the end of the day, Ukraine's going to be a member of NATO too. That's what his invasion did. And it just demonstrates that if we had continued the policy, which we had uh, embarked upon in 2008, which is to talk about NATO uh, for Ukraine, but never do anything, um, we would... Um, uh, we would be in a worse place than we're likely to be now. Uh, well, Ambassador Dalder, thank you so much for your time. Sure, my pleasure. All right, thank you all for listening. Thank you to Evo Dalder, and thank you to the listener who is listening to me right now. The podcast has grown substantially in recent weeks. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. Thanks for joining. I do recommend you go back and scroll through our robust archive of content. I've been publishing two episodes a week, every week since 2014. So surely uh, there are older episodes that are of interest to you. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.